getting away from the multitude and more and more focusing on his own disciples as he's making his way now from the eastern or yeah the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem. Eventually, it's going to take about six or so months from this present time in which we find him speaking to his disciples until he reaches his destination in Jerusalem. And it's from this point that Luke tells us that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. Set his eyes like a flint. In other words, he was focused. This is what he's got before him. And this is not going to be changed by anybody or by anything. He's got a destination. He's got a time frame in which he is to attain to that which he is intending to do. And so now, Jesus, having asked the question of his disciples in chapter 16, in the early part of chapter 16, we saw him ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the response came, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah or this prophet or that prophet. And then he asked the question, and we looked at that the last time, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then came the answer from Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended Peter for having spoken that, not because he came from himself, but it came from the Lord through Peter. And Jesus tells Peter that very fact. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, he told Peter, but my Father in heaven. What a great, wonderful thing to have heard the Lord Jesus speak to any of his disciples to Peter in this particular occasion, but how, I wonder, would it be wonderful for each one of us to hear those same words? Well done, for God the Father has spoken these words through you. Have you ever wanted to minister to somebody or, or help somebody out in a situation and, and you feel the, the, the scripture that comes to your mind is burning in your heart and you share that scripture and it's just exactly what that individual needed? Well, those are wonderful opportunities for us to be used by the Lord and you can know that that came from the Spirit of God who was in you. It didn't come from your own intellect. It didn't come from your own uh, memory of Scripture. It just happened to be something that the Lord put on your heart to say at that particular time. And it's always a blessing when that is experienced. And that was the kind of experience that Peter must have been having as he heard Jesus say those words. And I wonder if Peter looked around to all the others that were nearby and perhaps with a smile on his face, you know, God spoke to me. He may not have said that. I don't know that that's so, but I'm always mindful of the fact that there seems to have been a bit of a competition, especially between Peter and John. And so it's a possibility, but I don't want to elaborate on the point, but I do know that it was those who were the leaders of the group, especially the three top guys, Peter, John, and James, they were more often chosen by the Lord than any of the others. And Peter always seems to be the spokesman of the group. And if you look through the Scriptures, as you read through the Gospel records, you see a bit of competition between them. It was especially so when it was those three, James and John in particular, who wanted to know who's going to sit at your right hand. 
James and John came to the Lord, and it was by the prodding of their mother, they wanted to have a bit of, well, importance in the kingdom. And they wanted to sit at his right hand. And Jesus told them, it's not for me to make that appointment. He wasn't mad at them for wanting to be in a position of authority. I think perhaps it caused Jesus a bit of, well, heartfelt gratitude for the fact that God had chosen those men, even though they didn't really know what was ahead of them. So he's going to tell them several things that they need to know before he goes to the cross. And one of the most important of those things is the fact that he is going to the cross. They thought, well, he's going to establish the kingdom any time now. We're heading toward Jerusalem, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and the Romans will be out of there, and we'll be in power with Jesus, reigning with him. That's an exciting thought that they, all of them, all twelve, thought because he had chosen them, separating them from all the other people who had been following him, they were the ones that Jesus was going to use in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, he had elsewhere told them that they, the twelve, would sit on twelve thrones ruling over the people of Israel. How good is that? It sounds pretty enticing to me. But there was a power grab. And that's why later on we see them arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest among them. So there is a competition there that's in the Scriptures given to us to know that these guys were just ordinary guys like all of us. And Jesus had to kind of set them straight on a lot of different things. But here in that passage that I was referring to in the earlier section of chapter 16, Jesus is given, giving to Peter, great, wonderful news that God had indeed spoken through him. But then, Matthew unfolds for us what takes place next. And that's where we begin to look today. Chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show them, His disciples, that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is the first time of three times that Jesus explicitly states He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross and He'll be raised from the dead. It tells us in verse 22, Then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. No way, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. That's ridiculous, Lord. Those are the kinds of thoughts that were coming from Peter's lips as he spoke this rebuke to Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I, I don't think that's a good idea. But Jesus didn't call down thunder and lightning in response to Peter's words, but he did say something that Peter did not expect. You see, Peter thought that since God had spoken through him, that God will continue to speak through him. And that may be so for him and for all of us. But at this particular time, 
what he spoke was nothing to do with God. And Jesus now turns to all of the disciples after Jesus had heard these words from Peter, more or less privately. Jesus heard Peter say these things uh, as Peter took him aside. He's, he must have been like, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus turned after Peter had said that and spoke to all of the disciples in their hearing these words. He turned and he said it to Peter, but they all heard it. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Listen to what Jesus is saying to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, who is the source of what Jesus had heard Peter say? Satan was the source of that. Just a short while ago, who was the source of what Peter had to say? God the Father. How could that be? Well, you might be willing to say that perhaps because he wasn't yet filled with the Holy Spirit, the church hadn't been established, the Spirit hadn't come, he wasn't truly born again. That would not be at all a truthful way of looking at what is being done here and what is being presented here to us. I submit to you that any one of us could be used by God on one occasion and then not much longer after that we could fail miserably in what we say or do. And that is the state of all men because we are still living in the flesh. What we need to do, what we need to remember is there is nothing good in us that is in our flesh. That's what Paul, the Apostle said. There is no good thing in my flesh, Paul said. Well, what does that mean? It means that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit, always. And when we rely on the Holy Spirit, we will be speaking for God and on behalf of Him, representing Him as His ambassadors, and it will be pleasing to God. But there are times when we operate in the flesh. We don't realize that it's the flesh, and we make the mistake of saying something we should not have said, or maybe we realize it is in the flesh, but we just get so fed up with that person that we're talking to that we want to be letting that one know that he or she is wrong and needs to be corrected. Well, that can be flesh. That can also be led by the Spirit. But you have to make sure that it is the Spirit before you take that kind of action. Always, if you're going to reprimand anybody, if you're going to rebuke anybody like Peter did to Jesus, it should be done first through prayer. Is this what you want me to say, Lord? This is what I feel is on my heart, but is, is it right? And yeah, if it's right, speak it, but speak it in love. Peter rebuked Jesus. I, I don't know about you, but that's a scary thing to me. And when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, what must Peter have felt when he heard those words? How low that was. How awful, how scathing rebuke that comes from the lips of Jesus to one who speaks from the flesh. He's still the same God today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. So if we're going to be speaking things that are offensive, let us be mindful before we speak. Is it of God? Or is it of men? This time, Peter spoke out of line. And he calls him Satan. Now, he's not telling Peter that he is Satan. But he's telling Peter that he's allowing Satan to speak through him. 
And the reason that Jesus uses this phrase, get behind me, Satan, is most likely because Jesus knew that that was Satan's desire to persuade Jesus from going to the cross. And that's why it was such a terrible thing to Jesus, an offense to Jesus, because the offer from Satan many, many months before this, at the beginning of his ministry, was very much the same. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all those kingdoms. This same offer by Peter, being given by Satan through Peter, to help Jesus make a different choice than what he knew he had to make. He came to do God's will. And going the cross, to the cross was part of, of very much the plan of God. And Satan would not thwart that which Jesus was about to do. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. So Jesus has told them plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to scourge me, scourge me. They're going to mistreat me to the point of putting me to death. I will be killed by those who hate me, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. But I'll be raised on the third day. They heard the first part. They got that part. Peter didn't like it, and neither did any of the other disciples. But Jesus had said, not only are they going to kill me, but I'll be raised again the third day. That's what they didn't hear. If they heard it, they didn't apply it. They didn't apprehend it. They didn't conceive of such a thing as being possible. Their Messiah, their view of the Messiah was one of victory. And they were prepared to go to Jerusalem to experience that victorious entering into the city. To take the throne and be part of the kingdom that was about to be established. That was their limited view. Jesus had other plans. And he's beginning to reveal those things to them. And so he continues to say to them, after having spoken so harshly to Peter... Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is not the first time Jesus spoke those words. You may recall in our study in the book of Matthew several weeks ago, chapter 10, He said the same thing in verses 38 and 39. Different context, but very much the same words. And here he's reminding them of these things. You must deny self. You must take up your cross and follow me. Those three things are still necessary for the believer today. So what does it mean when he says deny self? Well, we know there are a lot of books out on self-denial. The world has published many books on self-will. Many books on self-improvement. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about getting rid of your dependence on you. Deny yourself, your being, your will. Let it go. Let it go. Deny self. 
Paul says it, that we are to crucify the flesh. Die unto sin. Still a requirement for any believer today. Well, that sounds awful. I thought Christianity was to be an experience that would be a blessing. Great joy that would come upon an individual who commits himself or herself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Doesn't the Word say that He gives us joy unspeakable and full of glory, a peace that passes all understanding, the love of God that is so wonderful, poured out on behalf of the sinners, and forgiveness of our sins? Isn't that great victory? Isn't that giving us the ability to overcome all things, to be greater than what we once were? Different than what we once were. Paul tells us that. Paul says, behold, all things are new. The old has passed away. All things are new. What's Paul mean by that? Paul says the old things have passed away. They've been done away with. No longer are they to be an influence in our lives. That's what denial of self is. And when he says, take up your cross, keep in mind that the cross was an instrument of death. It doesn't mean put a an emblem around your neck, a symbol of the cross, as a neck chain, it means take up your cross. It doesn't necessarily mean, although it can't be ruled out, that your cross may be the pain that you suffer in this life. That's part of it, perhaps. But what Jesus is saying when he says take up the cross is much more significant to that. He's saying identify with what the Romans expected the criminal to do. The Romans expected the criminal that was convicted and to go to the cross carrying his own cross to that place of death. That's what Jesus is saying that we must do. And his disciples also heard it now more than once already, but now he's speaking of it in terms of what he is about to do. He's about to take up his cross and go to that place where he will be crucified. They need to understand the principle that's being applied here. We must crucify our flesh if we're to follow him. But the benefit of doing so is that we are given something far better. But we can only receive that which is far better by releasing that which is worse. Let go of your will, your selfishness, your pride, your arrogance. Let go of your flesh and let God take care of the rest. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow Him. We sing that little chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. You know, that is a wonderful song if you truly have decided to follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me. What's that song saying? It's saying, I am willing to let God's Word be fulfilled in my life. I've decided to follow Jesus and whatever that involves, whatever that may come to, the reality is I will not turn back. Will you? He goes on to explain why it's important because he says in verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in glory, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. 
Jesus is saying, look, it's worth it. It's worth every moment of suffering. It's worth every expectation of dying on that wooden beam, letting go of your life so that He can raise you up in His. The profit of gaining the whole world is nothing compared to the profit of gaining Christ. To live is Christ. And when you do live for Christ, to die is gain, Paul tells us. Otherwise, if you give your life to another, you lose it in the end. Again in verse 27, he tells them now that he's coming again. And when He comes, He's going to come in glory. The glory of His Father. Coming with His angels. Well, when's that going to happen, Lord? That, by the way, is still future. It hasn't happened yet. That's our great expectation. That's our blessed hope that He will indeed come. And when He returns, He will come for us who are His church. Those who have put their faith and trust in Him. And we will see Him come in that glory. And we will be rewarded for the works that we have done at the Bema Seat of Christ. We've talked about that over and over again in many of our studies in this church. There are judgments, plural, that are going to take place in the future. The first one that is of greatest importance to us is what I just referred to as the Bema Seat of Christ. It means a judgment for rewards. The saved are the only ones who participate in that judgment. Those who have been forgiven of their sins, whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who have been redeemed, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit through forgiveness of our sins, those who have committed themselves to serving Jesus Christ all the days of their lives, those are the ones who will be taken up together with all of the other saints who have gone on before them and us. And we, all of us, will be seated at that judgment seat to receive rewards for the works that we have done in this body. It's not about salvation. It's about rewards for those things that we have done. That's the Bema seat. The other judgment comes much later, a thousand and seven years later, actually. And that judgment will be a judgment for the unsaved. And it's not a judgment that will be based upon rewards. It'll be a judgment that will be based on their rejection of Christ. That's not what he's referring to here. Those two judgments are separate judgments, and he's referring to the fact that he's coming to give out rewards to those who believe in him. And then in verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some, not all, will see this. There are scholars, quotation marks around that word scholars, who argue that Jesus made a mistake by stating this fact. Because after all, all of those who heard those words died. And it wasn't fulfilled, they say. The kingdom hasn't come yet, so therefore Jesus spoke falsely. Therefore, they would argue that Jesus didn't know what he was saying, talking about 
it was something that they would argue for the sake of proving that Jesus was just a man like you and me. That he wasn't the Son of God. And they'll take it all the way to the very, very extreme. They didn't read chapter 17. It's unfortunate that there's a chapter break here because chapter 17 does indeed follow what Jesus just said at the end of chapter 16. Only a few days separated the events that are recorded in that last verse of chapter 16 and those events that are going to be read next in the beginning of chapter 17. So don't separate the two. They are very much related. Jesus had said, some of you will see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. They will see His glory. He said, I will come with the glory of His Father and with His angels. That's still future. But they, some of them, are going to see that glory. And that's what chapter 17 begins with. Verse 1 says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother. Remember I had mentioned He takes those three on occasion separately from the rest? He does that on two or three other occasions. It wasn't because they were necessarily more important than the others, but He chose them for certain ministries, just as He chooses men and women today for certain ministries. You know, when Jesus chooses what He wants to do with each of us, who are we to complain? Who are we to ask why I didn't get to be doing that? He's got you in a place. He's got me in a place for a reason. And some people are chosen for different tasks, and that's a good thing. He chose Peter and James and John for a specific task. He chose them in this occasion to view something that he was about to show them that none of the others would see. Peter, later on, after many years will have passed, and he writes Second Peter... He refers to this event that we're about to read. But here it says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Nobody really knows which high mountain that was. There are some who speculate it was Mount Tabor, which is on the Mediterranean side of the Sea of Galilee. Others believe, because he's been on the eastern shores, believe it was Mount Hermon. I think that's more likely because it says it was a high mountain. Tabor is nothing more than a little hill, comparatively. Hermon is high enough to have snowfall in the wintertime. They even have a ski resort on Mount Hermon. So it was a high mountain, likely that mountain. And it tells us, in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. The word in the original language, the Greek language for transfigured, is metamorphosis. We get the word metamorphosis from the original Greek. Metamorphosis means what it says, changed into some other form. You're familiar with that term perhaps in your science classes in school, if you were ever taught this properly, that the tadpole is metamorphosized. metamorphosized. There's a metamorphosis that takes place when the tadpole changes into a bullfrog. There's a metamorphosis that takes place when the moth changes into or rather the caterpillar changes into a moth or a butterfly. That's what it is, a change in form. He was transfigured. 
He was changed in form before them. These three men saw this with their own eyes. His face, it tells us at the end of verse 2, says, His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as light. Radiance came out from within. That's a miracle, is it not? For the glory of the Son of God manifest in that human form, being changed, transformed before their eyes. And they saw the glory of Jesus that He spoke of earlier, six days prior to this. They saw it with their own eyes, the glory of the Son of God standing before them. There was one expositor who said that's actually not a miracle in Jesus, perhaps, way of thinking. And you wonder, well, what does he mean by that? That's not a miracle? Of course it was a miracle. Well, really, the miracle was that Jesus could suppress that radiance every other day of his walk on this earth. That's the true miracle. But here he's allowing his glory to be manifest for the first time in that human flesh to demonstrate to them, to show them that He is indeed the One who is coming as the Messiah. The resurrection that He spoke of six days or seven days before that is being revealed to them in this form, on this transfiguration mount. I don't know about you all, but when I consider that, I wonder what I would have done had I been there. Do you ever think that? Do you ever wonder what it would be like to actually see what they saw after having walked with Him for over now three years and to realize He really is the Son of God and look at the glory that He just revealed? Have you ever looked into the sun? Don't do it. It's not a good idea. The sun in the Middle East is even more intense. But Matthew says, He's shown like the sun. That's powerful. You could look in that direction, but you can't stare at it for any length of time. It will burn your eyes out. And yet, they were able to see Him. Not only Him, Read further. It says in verse 3, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus. Jesus in his glorified form. Moses and Elijah who had not been on earth for hundreds of years. Well, you need a little bit of an explanation perhaps. Who are they? Well, they're Old Testament saints. Moses, of course, you all know by the name Moses, because he was the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He was the one who was used by God in the establishment of the law. He led the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And he himself, although he wanted to go into the land of Canaan with the people, he was not allowed to do so because he had misrepresented God at the second striking of the rock just before they entered into the land. And God said because of his having misrepresented God the Father through that action, he could not enter into the land of Canaan. But he brought him to a mountain. 
Mount Nebo, it's assumed, where he was able to see all of what would be given to the people. But now Moses is 120 years old, and it's time for Moses to move on from this life to the next. So the Bible tells us Moses died, but God buried him. God didn't want them to build a shrine where everybody could go, and this is where Moses was buried and worshipped that shrine. He did it secretly. As a matter of fact, we're told in the New Testament that Michael the archangel came and argued with Satan for the body of Moses. Satan wanted to take that body for his own purposes. Michael the archangel said, no way, the Lord rebuke you. That's not what's going to happen to this body. God wants this body. You can't have it. We find out here that Moses is now standing with Jesus. Technically, Moses died. And so, as Moses is standing there with Jesus, it must mean that he's somehow been given a body that can be seen, whether it's his resurrection body or not. I don't believe it is because Christ is the first of the resurrection, the first fruits. He hasn't yet gone to the grave and raised from the dead to be raised up in that glory. But somehow, Moses has been preserved until this event. More on Moses in a moment. But what about Elijah? Elijah never died. If you read in the Old Testament records, Elijah was taken up. Elisha, his servant, saw him being raised up into glory. He didn't die. There's only one other person that that seems to be the experience of that individual. That individual is Enoch, the seventh man generation from Adam. And it just simply says that Enoch walked with God, walked with God and was taken. Found no more. So the assumption is that Enoch was also taken up like Elijah. He didn't die. So in the Word of God, there are two men, Elijah and Enoch, who never saw death. A third person, Moses, we don't know what happened to his body, but God does. Now you fast forward to what is yet future to our time, yet to be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 11 talks about two men who appear in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, proclaiming the gospel record message to all who would come. Two prophets standing. One of them doing miracles just like Moses did. The other of them doing miracles just like Elijah did. And so the assumption is by many expositors, these two witnesses who will be standing in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, these two men may be, most likely, it's speculative, but it's what most of us would accept as being most likely, Moses and Elijah. Now, it could be Enoch as one of those two, because again, the only two men who did not die physically were Enoch and Elijah. But because of the miracles that they two are performing, it is, I think, most likely these two, Moses and Elijah. But they will be, in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, killed by the Antichrist. And three days, they will be laying on the ground, exposed, 
and then raised up from their death into new life and caught up into heaven. That's powerful. That's going to happen. Those are the words of God. Those are the destinies of those two men. But here in this event, already almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus is standing together with Moses and Elijah. And he's speaking to them. They, Peter and James and John, recognize Moses and Elijah. They don't have name tags on. They haven't been introduced. Moses, this is Peter, and he's not a real... Well, you know, he's, he's okay. And this is John and James, their brothers, they're fishermen, all of them. Not, uh, but, but anyway, Peter, James, John, this is Moses, this is Elijah. Elijah, this is Moses. You knew that anyway because you've been around there with Moses for I don't know how many hundreds of years now anyway. But anyway, no introductions were made. No indication of anything given to identify these two men to the three disciples. It just says in verse 4, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If, if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He knew them. He knew who they were. I submit to you that perhaps they got a glimpse not only of the glory of Jesus, but they experienced something about the kingdom of God that we all of us will experience when we are given our glorified bodies. Who recognize people? We'll know who each other are. We may not look the same. I hope we don't, actually, but we may not look the same, but we'll be recognizable. It won't be because we've got names written on our forehead. It won't be because we've got some kind of a, a shingle on our, our breastplate saying, this is who I am. It's not that. It is common knowledge that will be given to all. That's what Paul says, at least one of the things that Paul says, we will know as we have been known when we have those glorified bodies. Peter is experiencing the kingdom. James and John with him. But Peter again, the spokesman, says something very interesting. Again, he says, Oh, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. What does he want to make three tabernacles for? Well, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. An interesting proposition. There are a lot of opinions about why he suggested that. Some thought of it as being something like, well, we want to establish the kingdom and we may as well set up the shrines right here on this mountain so that everybody can come and, and worship Jesus and Moses and Elijah, all three of you here in the mountain at one time, and we'll be always able to come and worship you guys, you three, here. Well, that's probably a stretch. It may be what might have come to mind, but I don't think it was. Peter is a Jew, and Peter knew from the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures that in the millennial kingdom, in the kingdom of God that would be established on the earth, there was one feast that is to be experienced by all the peoples of the world every single year, and that would be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. That feast is coming up in about a little bit over a month from now, still being observed by Jews today, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast of remembrance. They would build these tents or tabernacles, these wooden structures, permanent? No, they were temporary. They were just booths, if you would. They would live in those booths for a period of seven days. 
But it would be a reminder of what they had to do when they were wanderers in the wilderness. But it also looked forward to the blessings of God for His provision for His people. And that's why the Feast of Tabernacles was so important to the Jews and will be in the kingdom of Jesus when He reigns upon the earth. Because they will recognize through the observance of that Feast of Booths that Jesus has fulfilled all of what had been promised. It will be a great and wonderful feast that everyone who is on the face of the earth during those seven, a thousand years rather, will experience. Peter must perhaps have been thinking of that eventuality that the Feast of Booths would be observed in the reign of the king. So here he's probably thinking of those things when he says, let us make three booths. But it's interesting also to look at the positions of those involved. Elijah was considered one of the greatest of prophets. In fact, Malachi says that Elijah will come again at the end of time, in the last days. Elijah is supposed to be somehow brought back into life. They were expecting that. It wasn't spoken of Moses in that way. But Moses was not only a prophet, but he was a great leader of the people. He gave the law. And so in the two of these men, you have the law represented and you have the Word of God represented. Prophecy and law represented by these two men. And here stands Jesus in their midst. But those two men are nothing like Jesus. They are not equal with Him. They are not to be looked upon with the same reverence. And that's why we read what follows in verse 5. While He was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. That voice was the very voice of God, spoken by God to Peter and James and John, who were there in that remarkable scene, God speaking to them. Hear Jesus. That is what they need to do. It's not about Moses, and it's not about Elijah, it's not about the three of them together, it's about Jesus being the only one that they should be listening to, hearing His voice and obeying His commands and doing His will. Moses and Elijah are just like you and me. They're not to be revered, they're just men. They're not to be worshipped, they're just men. Jesus, on the other hand, when Jesus came, He came in fleshly form. There's no evidence anywhere in the Scripture that Jesus was looked upon by anybody who would have said, whoa, this is somebody special. He was just a common man like you and like I. Wasn't anything really impressive about Him. He was just a Jew living in a Jewish community, being raised in a Jewish home, studying the Jewish laws, worshiping the Jewish God in the Jewish synagogue. He was just like all of the other people around him. Nobody thought any differently about him than this. 
Now he's being revealed for who he is. Peter will never forget these things. Peter will always look back on this day as a remarkable day in his life. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he refers to that. Verse 17 says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard that voice of God. The only other time that we know of that God speaks from the mountain to his people is when the law was given. And God spoke audibly. The people heard his voice. And they were fearful of it. Another time when God did speak those similar words to John the Baptist, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John records that and says, some thought it thundered, but it was God's voice. So God has spoken to reveal His Son. Peter remembered it well, and so did James and John. John would say, we beheld His glory, even of Him, the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. Back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 6 continues, after hearing that voice, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. I should think so. They fell to their faces on the ground. But Jesus, verse 7 says, came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. How often Jesus says that to his followers. Don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now they came down from the mountain. Jesus then said to them, commanded them in fact, saying, Tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Peter had to hold that in until after the resurrection and didn't write about it until he wrote Second Peter. But they were slightly confused about those things that had just taken place. In verse 10 it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the disciples, the scribes, say that Elijah must come first? They knew the prophecy in Malachi. They knew Elijah was to come before that great and terrible day of the Lord, it wasn't making any sense. Now that Elijah had come, but now he's gone, what's going on here? Why is this taking place in this way? By the way, if you read Luke's account of this event, it tells us that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, his decease, his death. They were talking to Jesus about what was to then come upon the Savior of the world. But why is it then, if Elijah was to come, why aren't you wanting us to tell everybody, Elijah has come, isn't it right for us to say so? Jesus says this, verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first. Still future. Elijah will come. Elijah is going to come. That has not happened yet. 
every faithful Jew on the day of uh, feast of Pente- uh, feast of Passover set a chair at their table for Elijah. At the end of their feast, if that chair is still empty, they say something like, perhaps next year. Elijah will come. And I'm convinced that that coming of Elijah is going to be what we described earlier that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. At least Elijah is, I'm sure, one of those two prophets. Verse 12 says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Well, yeah, he did just then at the transfiguration, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Read on. Verse 12 says again, I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. Now, that's a first. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's the prophecy that was given to John's father, that his son, John the Baptist, would be coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was indeed a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. But take note of the fact that what is being referenced here is two times Elijah is going to appear. The first is John the Baptist. The second is Elijah himself, separated by several hundred years. Dual prophecy is very common in the Scripture. And Jesus is referring to that one prophecy, pointing to two separate events that fulfill that one prophecy. They didn't understand that. And it's hard to grasp, but it is what God's Word speaks. John did indeed come and fulfilled that which was spoken of with regard to Elijah. But the people of God at that time did not receive it. They rejected the claims of John the Baptist. They rejected the the claims of Jesus Christ. They killed both of them. And Jesus is saying, they killed John, and just like they killed John, they're going to kill me too. Then the disciples understood, at least that part of it. There was a fulfillment, and there's still yet to be a fulfillment, because Jesus said, He will come. He is coming. That's still true today. And that's what we have to look forward to. Look, Jesus through this whole experience, talk about his death, going to the grave. As is a custom of all of us, we can't do anything about it. Every one of us is going to die except those who are raptured when he comes for his church. But that having said, been set aside, let's remember that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the resurrection. Jesus died and he was raised again, again on the third day. And in his having been raised, he lives. And the promise is to all of us that because he lives, we also shall live. We all will die, but we all of us will live. Our souls are eternal. There's no stopping that. I remember talking to an older woman in her 90s who said, I don't want to live forever. And my response to her was, you can't do anything about that. You will live forever. And you will live either in the presence of God or you will live separated from God. You take that as truth and you make the decision to either go in one direction or the other. But the choice is always ours to make. We can receive Christ as our Lord and Savior and enter into that promise that God has made for anyone who wants to. Come, taste and see 
experience life, abundant life. But you've got to take yourself and let it go. You've got to deny your flesh, your will, your very being, and turn it all over to Him. Take up that cross. Bear that cross proudly as you walk to your death, as Jesus did. And if we are willing to follow Him in that path that He chose for Himself, that He chose for all who would follow after Him, then you have life. That cross should be a reminder to us that we are His. Identify with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only way to enter into the kingdom. He wants all of us to be set free from the burdens of sin. He wants all of us to be living our lives in victory. You can't have victory until you experience death. The victory can only come through the resurrection power of God Almighty. That's why Paul tells us later on in in 1 Corinthians on our Thursday night study, we'll eventually get to that place. It'll be a while. But on our studies on Thursday night, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about this wonderful experience that all of us who believe will experience. He says that we all will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He tells us that the corruptible, these bodies, these vile bodies, are indeed corruptible. Mine's falling apart. I know all of yours is as well. No matter what your age. It's not improving. It's devolving into something that you probably will not enjoy if you continue much longer in this body. Corruptible flesh. Vile bodies. Paul says that corruptible will be changed into that which is incorruptible. That's the promise. He also says in Philippians, the vile bodies again that he represents and mentions there, those vile bodies will be changed into glorified bodies, like unto his glorified body. Look back at what we just read. Shining like light. It wasn't reflective light. It was radiating from within. For you and I, We're to be lights in the world. But in this present condition, we don't have that light that we can radiate from our being as He did. Oh, that would be wonderful. We could walk down the street and we see an unbeliever and start shining that light from within, saying, look at what you're missing out on. That would be attractive. That would be pretty powerful. But that's not how God operates. He speaks to His servants. His ambassadors. He has sent you and me with a message. Go unto all the world. Teach them what I have taught you. The gospel is spoken, but it's also lived. And we need to live out our lives in a way that will always be reflective of who He is. And then there will come a day when our bodies will be changed and will shine like the stars of heaven because that's the promise of our God. Are you joining me? I'm going to go. And I want everybody that I know to go with me. That's why I want to continue praying for those who I know haven't yet made that commitment to Christ. 
those who haven't come to Him asking for forgiveness of sins. There are so many in the world today that don't even know that they're sinners. They think they're doing a good job in living this life out. After all, they do all kinds of good Samaritan kinds of things. They live their lives peaceably. They don't hurt anybody. They just live their lives without any conscious awareness of sin. They don't understand. They don't comprehend. They need to come to that place where they realize that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is born in sin. But God provides a way for us to come from that and experience this new life that He promises to all who would simply just receive Him as their Lord and Savior and forgiveness of their sin. You may not be one of those who is troubled by sin in this present hour. Or you may be one who is a believer in Christ and yet you've had difficulties with anger or confusing things that should be very, very wonderful. But you're not experiencing that joy. You're not experiencing the fruit. You're not experiencing the peace that God wants for us. And you're wondering why. But what is it? What holds you back? Because of your flesh. You're not denying your flesh. You're you're looking at your self-reliance, your self-image, your self Whatever. Let it go. Let God replace it with Himself. Oh, people, the time is short, and you all know these things to be true. And this word is a constant reminder to me, I hope it is to you. This passage, this transfiguration of Christ, is a preview of what is to come. Oh, read it often. Read it carefully. Read it with a desire in your heart to see Jesus as He is now. That day will come. And if you're a true believer in Christ, you'll be glad that you have done it. So let's make sure we've done exactly as Jesus has said here. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. Number three, follow Him. He is the way, the only way to the Father. I have decided no turning back.